Okay, welcome to 3CRD. Can I happy new year? And so glad you can uh, keep uh, the discussion up for 2016. Happy new year to you, Lali, and it's a pleasure. Okay. So last year, just because uh, just before we broke up for holidays, the elections were about to take place, and that took place on the 20th of December, correct? Correct. Okay, so, well, bring us up to speed. What's happened? What ha- what, I believe the results were a bit messy, to, to say the least. Well, I think the important thing about the result was that the two important things, no party got an absolute majority, mm-hmm. and the establishment parties, the, you know, the bipartisan uh, parties, were the ones that, uh, which is the popular party, or People's Party, which is the right-wing party, but also the Social Democratic Socialist Workers' Party of Spain, they both suffered a tremendous loss of votes. In the first case, it was 3.6 million. In the other one, it was 1.5 million. Wow. So you had a, the, the traditional parties suffered a big bleeding, but it was not a complete disaster. They hung on. The um, PP got 27, 28% of the vote. Socialists got just under 21%. But the new parties on the block came in with a big rush, and the best, the, the party that most advanced was the sort of radical left party, Podemos, mm. and Citizens, which was set up to be a sort of anti-Podemos. It was set up to be the party that traditional PP voters could vote for because they were fed up with the PP corruption, the PP's corruption, etc. They had a disappointing result and only got 40 seats. Behind all of those numbers was the fact that there was a shift to the left in the actual Mm. electorate. So Mm. that if you look at the broad left versus right numbers, um, they were the right, that's, you know, the PP and its right wing forces had 52.7, 53% before the election. After the election, they have 47.8%. And the broad left, which includes, of course, the PSOE, the the Spanish Socialist Workers Party, Podemos, uh, left nationalist forces, etc., etc., they have a majority. So what you have is a situation where you have a left majority in society but a fragmented parliament, and ever since December 20, there's been a massive wheeling and dealing to see uh, whether a, a, a governing coalition can be developed from all this mess, can, become out of, can, can come out of this. And this, of course, is in a situation where the Catalan... Uh, question, the Catalan national question. Remember the Catalan yes, absolutely, uh, nation, yeah. independentists got, an indep- got a majority back in September 27, That's right. where they actually, at the last minute, managed to get a government up. So there is now a government in Catalonia. Everybody was sneering. Look at these Catalans. They can't even form a government. <laughs> There's been a government in, Catalan, uh, in Catalonia since the very end of the last year, uh, <clears throat> and it is pursuing its its path, which is towards setting up an independent, uh, the structures of an independent state, uh, to having a, its own constitutional process, and then it will have a vote on the constitution that derives from that, and if they get 20, 50%, they will see that as a declaration of independence, justifying a declaration of independence, and so a referendum. So Catalonia in the, is the big issue in the middle of all this uh, national wheeling and dealing at the Spanish level. But, but in 2014, Catalonia had a bit of a referendum, and the, I think 80% of the, the Catalonians want to be independent. 
If well, no, that was that was a consultation. So they were they were oh, forbidden okay. from having a referendum by the constitutional court. Mm. They cannot have a referendum. So they, you can't have a Scottish style referendum, which is the only way to solve, in the short run, yeah. the only way you can have a solution to the national question in Catalonia and mm. in other parts of Spain too, Spanish state, the Basque country, Galicia. But Catalonia is the first cab, of, you know, the first cab off the rank. Yeah. Now. The central government refuses this, so the Catalan government of the time said, okay, we won't have a referendum, we'll have a citizen's consultation. Ah, okay. The, the, the consult, so it's not a referendum, it's, we're just, it's like a huge opinion poll. Yep, we're yep, just yep. asking people what they're, we're having an opinion poll in which the sample is the number of people in Catalonia, right? Mm-hmm. So then <clears throat> that was stopped, of the constitutional court, the Spanish constitutional court ruled this is illegal, but by that time, they'd set it up that it was underway. Yep. And it was done by volunteers. Hmm. Uh, so they could say the government has nothing to do with this. You know, we just said it. We said the mass movements of, Catalan Inde- of the Catalan independence movement, which is the Catalan National Assembly, the Association of Municipalities for Independence, and uh, other forces, <coughs> they did all the organising. Hmm. Then after the... Then, that you, then you got the result, the 80% result that you referred to. Mm. But because this was not an official referendum, basically there was a boycott or non-participation by those people who are pro-staying in the Spanish state. Right. So the, you, you only had you know, 2.4, I think 2.5 million people participating. Whereas of, course, whereas, of course, in the elections, you had near, uh, 4 million people yep, participating. So, okay, so, so everybody understands that this was, this was a consultation of opinion. You get an 80% result because the vast majority of people participating are pro-independence. Yep. Um, but, it's not, but it's just a reflection of where the, you know, the balance of forces is at the moment. Okay, so it's made more... It's made more complicated. I should explain this because listeners will wonder what this is all about. It's made more complicated by the fact that the result at the Catalan election on the 27th of September was a minority in favour of independence, but they got a majority of seats in the parliament because of the gerrymandered electoral system here. Right. So everybody understands and the government, the new government, pro-independence government understands that they have to have what everybody would regard as a referendum, uh, even if that's not going to be sanctioned from Madrid, which it won't be, given the present balance of forces in the country. But it will be uh, it will be necessary for other countries to say yes, we recognise that that's you know the majority sentiment of the Catalan people. So Catalonia is the central political issue, along with austerity, along with it, all the other. Well, Australia in particular, <laughs> along with corruption. Yeah, but given but that... It is uh, the central issue. Yeah, Catalonia, Catalonia being the richest region in Spain, I can understand the angst of the people there. But now we need to fit that into this this Spain-wide elections. How does it all well, fit that, together? That's how does that all fit together? Well, the interesting thing is that the Podemos went to this election in the 20th of December with a clear position in favour of the right of nations to self-determination right. within the Spanish state mm. and in immediate terms in favour of having a, a referendum in Catalonia. <clears throat> they said, well, we don't support independence for Catalonia 
but we support the democratic right of the Catalans to decide. And they did that after having wobbled on that issue over 2015, but their experience of having stood in the Catalan elections on the 27th of September and the bit of a mess they made of it, that convinced them that they had to have a clear, unambiguous position on that. And everybody felt, ooh, how's this going to work in the rest of Spain? You know, there's a lot of anti-Catalan sentiment. There's a lot of feeling that, well, there's only one nationality in Spain, and that's the Spanish nationality, and the rest are just sort of, you know, regional cultural things, um, formations. How's this going to run? And the interest, the really interesting thing is they ran very hard on this and they formed in various regions where the national question is strong, in Valencia, in Galicia, uh, and they, 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 and in Catalonia itself, they ran, Podemos ran in broader coalitions with nationalist forces. And the result of this was that Podemos's vote jumped by most of all in those regions, but across the whole of the Spanish state. So having a decent democratic position on the right of nations to self-determination did not cost Podemos in those parts of the Spanish states, like Castilla, Extremadura, uh, Andalusia, Murcia, etc., uh, where the national question is not, not, not strong mm. or where there's an actual identification with, the, with Spain, the Spanish centralism, you know. So that was a very interesting result, mm. and it, it, what it did was it made, though of course they don't have the seats, uh, anywhere near the seats, to have a block which would enforce from Madrid a referendum in Catalonia, uh, <clears throat> what they've done is the number of, uh, the percentage of MPs pro-referendum has jumped from around, what, 15 to 90. Wow from the previous parliament to this parliament. Amazing. So that means, and they're insisting on this, mm. and in all the negotiations that has been this question of the democratic right. Spain is a plurinational country. Mm. The pluri, if it's a plurinational country, the nations that make up the country have to have the right to decide how they fit together or if they want to go, if they want, to, want independence. Yeah. Until we solve that, we can't solve anything. Well, we can solve other things, but this will just go on and on and on. Yes, and so, that and that was very important that they did that because that's a real change in mentality in in Spain as mm, a whole. Mm, it's an amazing change. Now the, the, the elections, the broader elections, and the austerity measures. How do we then um, unpick that in relation to the EU? Because Greece has just been through a mess. So how is is this going to pan out? You reckon? Well, I mean, if I could answer that question, I would be <laughs> worth a lot of money. Yes. Um, what, what is, <clears throat> what's happening now is that the, you have negotiations, uh, over whether, to, to form a government, whether a government can be formed. And that's the, you know, that's the real theme, that's the theme of the negotiations. Can they, can we try and form a government? But the real heart of the negotiations is a battle between the PSOE, which I keep, that's what they call them here, the socialist, the social democratic, so the socialist workers' party, I'll say PSOE, and Podemos, uh, over who's gonna have hegemony over the broad left, over the working class popular side of politics, put it that way. Uh, because Podemos got, uh, the PSOE got five and a half million votes and Podemos got I think 5.2 million 
Mm. So the only three hundred with with the, the various uh, um, alliances with which they ran in common in part of Spain. So the sort of Podemos axis, call it that, got five point three million, and the Pesoe got uh, so five point two million, and the Pesoe got five point five million. So the Pesoe just survived. Yes. Is as the lead party of the left, like the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And they just survived by having, how do they do that? By having this violently demagogic and abusive campaign against the PP. Mm-hmm. But within their ranks now, you can't discuss the question of government. And within their ranks, their right wing, including former prime ministers, want the PSOE to form a grand coalition with the PP. Well, that is just a a huge political gift to Podemos. That's right. So what has Pessoa done? The Pessoa has done an alliance with citizens. Now, citizens is the new right. That's right. As opposed to the old right. It's yeah. the, you know, it's the sort of Nike, Nike shoes wearing right as opposed to the old, you know, bullfighting right, if mm. I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and what it means is that, that citizens is as right as the PP on critical questions, especially the labour market, it's neoliberal. It's more neoliberal than the PP. Uh, and though in these negotiations they sort of managed to file off some of its most neoliberal aspects, what they've come up with is a pact between the Pessoa and Podemo, uh, and sorry, the Pessoa and citizens, which one hasn't got a majority in parliament, uh, and two doesn't address. And here I'm answering your question. Doesn't address any of people's complaints about the labour market reform, mm. cuts, to, cuts to education and health, public expenditure, uh, relationship to Brussels and you know, the demands from Brussels that Spain must reduce its, its public Spending. sector deficit by yeah. such and such every year. Yep. Uh, all, the, all the things that make up austerity, what is austerity, this deal accepts nearly everything. Uh, the only things that they've come to agreement on are things that will are just like the real corrupt heritage of the PP mm. to act against that. So they want to get rid of one level of government, which was just kept by the PP because that's the way they could give jobs to their their right. people. You yeah. know, yeah. they want to establish real independence for the judiciary because the judiciary here has been is totally politicised. You know. You are either nominated by the left or you're nominated by the right. That's how the, you know, it's, it's kind of quite striking when you come here. Yes. Uh, you know, the judge, you ask before you go to any court case, how many right-wing judges and how many left-wing oh, judges are there on this case? What chance have we got? You know, nothing to do with the evidence. <laughs> the jury, the, the, the judge is actually the jury, eh? So great. Yeah. So, that, you know, that, that's all true. But, of course, uh, Podemos made the point. They could vote for all of that. But that's not a program for government. That's no. just a series of reforms. Yeah. And if they were put up as, you know, actual bills to reform the way the judicial system is uh, operates, the way judges are selected, get rid of these this layer of government, which is called the deputations, which is just, you know, jobs for the boys and mm. girls and jobs for the faithful, put it that way. Yes. Uh, yeah, we'll vote for that. But that's not a program for government. No. So that's where we're at now, just rushing through a lot of stuff. Um, and what happens now is the PP is being asked to abstain on the vote for this alliance, which means if they did that, you would get a minority citizens per se government. 
but the PP has got their own interests to guard, not just the interests of the Spanish ruling class. So at the moment, there's a big pressure on the PP from the powers that be, the big economic powers, to let this government form. Wow. But the PP, that, the PP is not going to do that. Right. Right. The PP's got its own interests, and they won't do that. Uh, Podemos and the other le- the left nationalist and Catalan nationalist forces uh, in the parliament, they're all going to vote against this. Of course. This coverage. Yes. Hmm. Now, if the PP votes against it, which seems entirely likely to me, uh, then this thing falls, and then the PP gets to try and form a government. But they haven't got any allies, because even citizens won't do a deal with the PP. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think, and the, anyway, they would not ha- they would not have enough votes. Mm. So then, what's left? They've, what's left is a grand coalition between PSOE and the PP. But there's such bad blood between the PSOE and the PP, there would probably have to be leadership changes at the top of both those parties. And anyway, the, PS- the PSOE would pay an enormous political price for that. They're already paying a political price for this deal with citizens. Like you've got mayors of, uh, in around Barcelona, there are few remaining mayors who are kind of left people who are in charge of working-class towns, big working-class towns or cities, who are saying, I'm opposed to this. Mm. We're completely opposed to this. And you've got the sort of rank-and-file, like a late, your average, you know, your loyal Labor Party voter, like your loyal Socialist Party voter, say, why are we making a deal with these scumbags? Yes. Uh, you know, that's just the gut reaction. So uh, the, per- the, the party that's set up to gain from early elections, which everybody understands, is Podemos. Yes. Because all, all this is just like, you know, free kicks to Podemos. And mm. Podemos, the Podemos leadership has handled this whole thing very well, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, they put out a, a very detailed program for a left government. Yep. Uh, you know, a modest, doable program, but which attacks all... Uh, Issues, you know, unemployment, corruption, uh, <clears throat> spending on the public sector, health, education, all the things that people are concerned about, it, there's a proposal. Right? And it's, you know, they're doable proposals, but of course they're doable proposals technically on the basis of first the PSOE ceases to be the PSOE or it comes on board, or, and secondly you have a, you vote for a headlong confrontation between Spain and Brussels. Mm. But that's good because, you know, Brussels is the idea of, you know, what's happening in Europe, especially with refugees. Yes. Uh, and this horrible, the very horrible things that are happening in the discussion around refugees. All this is making the question of, well, what sort of Europe do we want to belong to? Exactly. Uh, a, a real discussion, not yes. just something in the air, not something, oh, yeah, well, that's all distant to me, you know. Yep. It's yep. become more and more real in daily politics. Mm. Well, refugees, refugees appear in front of you on television, around your living areas, and they are real people, and people are forced to address this issue. We'll take a short break, listen to some community announcements, and go back to the second half of Dick's interview. Welcome. 3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to 3CR's Sustainable Breakfast Series. Broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Tuesday, March the 15th to Friday, March the 18th, 
starts at 7am, goes through to 8.30am. Come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council. Women of the world unite for women's liberation, decolonization and economic justice. Come to the International Women's Day 2016 Rally and March on Tuesday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library on Swanston Street. If you support global demands for gender, racial and economic justice, please join us as we take to the streets on the 8th of March. For more information, call Liz on 0452 518 211 or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash IWD Melbourne. The IWD Melbourne Collective is a 3CR supporter. Culture gives our life meaning. Without it, we suffer. This is evident amongst displaced Indigenous communities all around the world. For the past seven years, we've been working with Indigenous people to develop a program that enables communities to utilise their culture as a means to reduce long-term poverty. Right now, we need your help to raise much-needed funding to get this program off the ground. Make a tax-deductible donation of $50 and receive an entry ticket to a family-friendly day of live music, food, festivities and a chance to win $2,000 cash. The event will take place on the 5th of March at the foothills of the Mount Macedon Ranges. You have an incredible opportunity to help us achieve our goals and impact the future for Indigenous peoples. For more information about this project and to purchase tickets, go to www.asworldsdivide.com. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. If you've just tuned in, this is Solidarity Breakfast. My name is Laita Chalaya, presenting this program, taking you right through to 9am. Currently we are interviewing Dick Nichols, who is the journalist for Green Life Weekly, who lives in Barcelona in Spain. He's catching up, allowing us to catch up with um, what's happened in um, Catalonia, especially in Spain, since the elections in the t- on the 20th of December last year. We had a lot of catching up to do, so it's a bit of a lengthy interview, so bear with me. So we shall return to the interview right now. But moving on from that, um, so what puzzles me is despite what happened in Greece, the Spanish people seem to so favor the right, like almost 50% divide between the left and the right from what you've described. That amazes me. First of all, the PP is the biggest party in Europe. Oh, it right. is the, it's got 850,000 or 900,000 members, mm. and it is, a cl- a, it is a clientelism machine. It's a machine for dealing out favours. Right. So it, and it is strongest in the rural areas, mm. which are the areas which have changed least since the dictatorship, okay. where you have the church... You have the local celeb, you know, the local entities, you know, the mayor, Lord Mayor, etc., etc. So if you go to a map of Spain and you look at, you know, where are all the PP mayoralties? They're all in the countryside. Mm. Not all of them, but you know, the vast majority of them. There's also the gerrymander in the vote, yeah. uh, in the voting system. That is to say, if there was a, pro- 
strict proportional one party, uh, one value, one, one vote, one value system in Spain, uh, the PP vote and the PSOE vote would be much less, up to, you know, the number of actual seats they would have got would have been, I think, 15 or 20 less in a, in a 350 seat parliament. Mm. So there's that. But the, the, that's, that's sort of additional and it's important and it's one of the things that uh, Podemos and Citizens actually is very strong on, you know, reform of the voting system. Yes. But it's not central. The central thing is the social connection between sections of the population and the PP, which includes a lot of working class people. Right. And it's working class people in areas where the jobs are handed out by the local council mm. or the local deputation, which is this layer of government I mentioned, which we want to, that anybody, you know, half decent wants to get rid of, but which is where the, where the gravy comes from, mm. you know? Mm. So, so that's the P, the PP is that that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, it suffered a big, huge hits uh, in these last elections where it was most corrupt, and which was in Valencia, where it got smashed. Mm. Uh, and it would lose. It would probably lose more if there are new elections because right. there's more corruption scandals have surfaced okay. since December 20. Mm. Uh, so in the other places are Madrid and in Galicia. Mm. Um, but these are these are the traditional PP areas, and they are the whole thing is shaking. The whole PP machine is shaking, but it has still got that. You know, you'd be surprised if they didn't get, if they got less than twenty percent. Mm. So, the, the so that's just twenty percent of the population that votes yeah. PP. Yeah. That's what they do, and then they're helped by the fact that there's anti-Catalanism in other parts of Spain. Yes, and they, they brandish this. Catalans, bastards, Catalans, rich people who just want to keep the money to themselves, uh, blah, 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 blah. There's an anti-Catalan message uh, or intox- intoxication that goes on, mm. um, which, if, you know, some people cop and which is successful. Yep. And whenever there's a, if, and, and they, at the next election, if, as we go to a new, if we go to early elections, that will be even more intense. Anyway, that's, that's, I'm just trying to explain why this, to answer your, your query, that there's at least 20% of the, the, of the country is right wing in that sense. Yeah. Then you've got citizens, the vote for citizens, which is 13, 14%, mm. which is the, um, it's the new right people who, people who think Spain could be just a normal capitalist country in Europe. You know? <laughs> yes. It could be not Spain. It could be somewhere like France or Germany. All we have to do is adopt, you know, proper, efficient policies, uh, reform government, get rid of corruption, get rid of unnecessary levels of administration, uh, have independence between the judiciary and the, and the, you know, the legislative power, division of powers, all that sort of stuff. I, do fin- complete the bourgeois revolution that was not completed when there was the trans, <laughs> yes. the, the transition from uh, the dictatorship. Yes, right? yes. So all that's there's a whole lot of people who think the problem's not you know it's not capitalism, it's not uh, you know way, the way Spain is inserted into the European market, it's not you know Spain as an imp- old imperialist power which still has a lot of uh, imperialist interests, especially in Latin America and the big Spanish yes, multinationals. None of that is a problem. 
Yeah. The problem is uh, is all this old feudal stuff yes, which we've got to just like cl- clean off. You know, oh. we clean that off, and then we're going we're going to wear a modern European power. We can we can talk to the Germans, we can talk to the French, talk to blah blah blah. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. God. And they still have a king anyway. <laughs> so, oh, sounds like mm. a mess. Anyway. And then you have right wing nationalism in the nationalities, like in Catalonia. There's the the right wing. Part of national of Catalan nationalism that's that's got support of seven hundred thousand people mm. in the Basque country. The right wing Basque nationalist party actually runs the region, runs the runs the regional government mm. uh, in in Euskadi in the Basque country, uh, uh, and well, that's it. So that's so you've got a right wing that is at war with itself. Yes. That's important to understand, you know, like the yeah. Catalan right and the Madrid right, the Spanish centralist right, they used to coexist on the basis of, you know, you can be corrupt in Madrid and run your, your little show there and allow us to run our show here in Barcelona. And it was a sort of, you know, like mafia gang, yes, you know, yes, west yes. side and east side of Chicago. <laughs> Divide we'll it up. up. <laughs> Divvy it up, right? So there's the dividing line. It goes down the, you know, the Ebro River, right? That's yours. This is ours. Yeah. Um, with the rise of the national, the independence movement, that pact dissolved. And so there's as much hatred between these right nationalist forces uh, as there is uh, between le- right and left. But okay. that doesn't exclude weird things happening, yeah. like suddenly the PP at the local level supporting a convergence. That's the name. Convergence is the main right party here in Barcelona, in, in Catalonia. Uh, doesn't exclude the PP supporting them at, uh, for a, in, a, in a council, right? Because they feel at that point, well, it's better the, the, the right run, runs the show than that we left these lefties in. Mm. Uh, so that's all there too. So it's a kind of very complicated. Yes, soup. it is. It is. Now um, we might have to leave that there for the time being, and we will come back to this maybe in a month or so because we, we've got to wait for the situation to straighten out if it ever does. Um, it, as you say, it may just go to a, another election. The way things are panning out, so we'll get back to it. But thank you so much, Dick. That's a lot of interesting news that we don't get in the media here. And I hope um, you know the listeners will appreciate that well, catching up. Thanks very much, Lali. And just to keep an eye on Spain, because though nothing is appearing in the papers, the powers that be, both here in Spain but in Brussels, are nervous as all hell I'm sure. about the situation about the situation here, yes. because they've got Greece temporarily under control. Yes. Portugal it doesn't present real of a threat, though they don't like Portugal. But if this Leads to you know new elections and a big increase in the vote for Podemos, then the whole reverberation in Europe, in addition to the refugee question, is mm. going to be pretty devastating. Mm. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay, welcome to 3CR, Dick, and a happy New Year. And so glad you can. Uh, welcome to. Th- okay, welcome to. Th- okay, welcome to 3CR, Dick. That went on a circular there for some reason. Sorry um, about that, listeners. I think I must have turned, not turned the mic off when we started the program. So good morning and welcome to 3CR's Highlight Your Breakfast. It's Lalita here. Um, apologies for the stuff up at the beginning. So that was Dick Nichols, who is a um, journalist for Green Left Weekly, and I do interview him, and it is pre-recorded to clear up any confusion for listeners. 
because in Spain it's difficult to get the timing right. Um, it's a bit complicated. Now, we'll go to some announcements and come back to um, some station ID. Okay, on the 7th of March, we have a protest um, against the war in Israel, uh, and in particular against a criminal Benny Gantz. Gantz led two major Israeli military offensives against the people of Gaza. Operations Protective Edge killed 2,200 Palestinians, including 500 children, and left tens of thousands of Gaza residents homeless. Gantz also headed Operation Brothers Keepers in the West Bank, which arrested and detained 800 Palestinians without charge or trial and killed another nine. So this protest is at 6.30 p.m. at the Grand Hyatt Hotel, 123 Collins Street in the city. So that's Monday, March the 7th. And then we have a rally in March, of course, International Women's Day. Yay! And um, that's at 5.30 at the State Library, and 328 Swanson Street. And following that, there's a public meeting, Why We Need Feminism, on an International Women's Day, sorry, um, this forum will, will take place in the Victoria University um, Footscray Park Room. Uh, uh, it's D531. This is in um, support of women's liberation on that day, of course. It's at 12, p- 12 midday, not p.m., 12 midday. Um, and it's organized by the student group there, um, and for more information, 9639-8622. Now, on the 10th of March, there's a public meeting. And for the, all those people who believe in, in preserving and protecting heritage buildings, we have Safe Pentridge Heritage, a no-high-rise towers of uh, Pentridge um, protest. Local residents were shocked to hear about plans for a 19-story tower on the Pentridge site. The people stated, uh, started to find out about the extent of heritage that has been destroyed and other high-rise towers being planned. Joined other community members to discuss what we can do to stop further destruction or, of heritage and loss of amenity. The speakers will be, an interesting lineup of speakers here, listeners, is Michael Buxton, RMIT, Professor of Planning, Michael Hemmel-Green, Emeritus, Emeritus Professor, Kelvin Thompson, Federal Member for Wills, Felicity Watson, National Trust, Chris Turner, Pentridge Precinct Resident. It's facilitated by facilitated by Sue Bolton, a councillor from Moreland City Council. It'll be at seven PM at the Uniting Church Hall, twenty one Victoria Street, Coburg. It's opposite the Coburg Library. So that's on the tenth of March and it's a public meeting. Um, it's organized by Safe Coburg Residents Network. Contact um, Safe Coburg by Facebook if you're on Facebook, or you can ring Sue Bolton on 0413-377-978. So that's if you're interested in um, heritage preservation, that's the place to be on the 10th of March, which is a Thursday. So let's go on to another interview, which is um, a pre-record with uh, Professor Ian Anderson. He is commenting on the um, Close the Gap report that was released last week. 
and I interviewed him, and unfortunately he was um, near a railway station, so you might hear some noises at the back, of course, trains. Um, forgive me for that, but um, that's the best he could do. This interview is with Professor Ian Anderson, who's an Aboriginal person and has enormous experience in Indigenous health. He's a Foundation Chair of Indigenous Higher Education. He's the Assistant Vice-Chancellor in Higher Education Policy, and he's a Chair of National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Equity Council. He's also the Director of Murup Barak, Melbourne, it's in Institute of Indigenous Development. So he is highly qualified and enormously experienced to comment on the Closer Gap report that was re- uh, recently released. Thank you for making yourself available to 3CR Professor Ian Anderson. Um, this is uh, about the Closer Gap report. Just wondered what your thoughts were on the report that's released recently. Um, well, I think this is the first of a series of annual reports that are presented to the annual parliament. I think it's very important that the Closed Gap uh, report get recognised for the accountability it provides to what government, and especially the national government, is doing in Aboriginal affairs. As previous reports have shown, um, it's a very mixed report card with um, some progress in some areas plus um, some disappointing progress in others. One of the key things which I think we can actually uh, celebrate is that there's really clear evidence of um, positive change in relationship to child and infant mortality. Uh, One of the things that's disappointing is that there's no real, as yet, evidence that we're seeing broader change at the level of life expectancy. And I think that's true for other measures around education and employment. And with the, the report card is mixed. Hmm. One of the issues that has concerned me as a person who's worked in, in the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service for six years is the approach, the, the framework. Um, there was a conference on the um, social determinants of health. And I don't see any of that reflected in this report. Um, What's your feeling on that? I think that's a really, really important observation. You probably won't find that at this very high level of reporting. So these are these are kind of very high level indicators. Uh, and one of the things is to go down to the very next level where they're actually spelling out the detail of what needs to happen. Uh, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan, which is a 10-year plan, Set over, uh, 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 set over the longer term, does have a lot more detail around uh, the social determinants of health and has a strong focus around child development and looking at health across life course. So I, I think that's a really, really key observation when you look at these kind of big picture reports. You've got to ask the question, is where's the detail and, and to what extent is the... Does the detail strategy provide a focus on building prevention and addressing uh, long-term inequalities uh, that are social around employment, economic development and, and other things that impact on health? Hmm. 
because you've got such enormous uh, experience in this in this field, I just wondered, uh, and being an Aboriginal person yourself, um, I just wondered if you uh, would suggest something different from the way the Closer Gap report um, is being uh, monitoring the progress, so to speak, of Aboriginal people's health. I think um, I think one of the one of the problems of uh, this sort of reporting is that. It needs to have really clear and measurable targets, but they also need to be uh, realistic. So the, the targets around child health, I think, are achievable. We can see um, in the in the horizon that there will be a time where we can actually feasibly close the mortality gap. I think the targets around life expectancy were very ambitious. It's often this is going to take more than one. It's going to take a couple of generations to actually really close that gap and in some ways the, the politics got in front of the science. Um, the, other, the other thing is just a very point we, that you um, drew attention to. These high level reports are no substitute for detailed collaborative strategy building that really engages with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and community organisations in, in the implementation and Whereas we can see that that probably is most strongly development in the health sector, other sectors, um, there are some very significant gaps. Mm. But do you see the the approaches taken by um, the governments in relation to trying to improve Aboriginal people's health in in general as one that is not culturally appropriate? Um, I think the, the way you, you need to look at the health strategy, not the closing up. So the National Indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Health Strategy has a strong, a strong framework around cultural uh, appropriateness and the, the cultural basis of, of health gain. So that, that in itself doesn't connect to the Close the Gap report, which is one of the problems. But if you want to see really where the detail is, you need to look at the more specific um, uh, strategies around health. Mm. One of the key things I've observed uh, in my short time um, working in the community is that it's, the men seem to be falling through the gaps. The women are a lot more health conscious. Maybe it's because you know they have children, therefore they are more connected to GP services and health services. Yep. It's the men, I find. There are very little supports for men, and um, definitely the health is way behind the uh, general community. What's your opinion on that? I think that's a very good observation. And in fact, the the frameworks around men's health are, are, are I think there's a recognition across the Aboriginal community community control sector is a really important issue. But the kind of frameworks are still very poorly developed. Um, the, the focus around children often brings in mums but doesn't always bring in dads into the process. And I think the other, the other key, there are two other key gaps. Um, one is around uh, young people and adolescents who, who are often outside, not really needing, needing health care services, but who are quite vulnerable. And I think increasingly there's also a need to have a much stronger focus on healthy ageing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hmm. And the other thing that also worries me a bit is that uh, people who want to live um, in the traditional way, who prefer to to live in the out in the bush or 
engage in um, traditional ways of living and forming their own businesses uh, for employment purposes um, is is not highly encouraged. And I fe- and I also find the emphasis on employment can be a bit of a deterrent too. I'm not sure if I'm accurate in my views, but I just wondered if you if you had some thoughts on that sort of approach. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of development in Northern Australia around thinking around uh, participation in the economy. So um, I think that probably we need to look at some of the, the leadership in some of the Kimberleys and uh, North East Island lands, Cape York and... and uh, around some of these issues about looking at how do you create meaningful jobs uh, often around um, the cultural industry, um, also around uh, land conservation. Um, there's an emerging economy around carbon trading and so on. So I think that the, the thinking around um, the place of jobs and employment in northern and regional and central Australia is, is quite dynamic at the moment and probably... Uh, need to kind of think through some of that detail and how it might apply to the kind of jobs agenda. Mm. So given this report, how do you think um, this whole thing can go forward? Um, look, I, I think there are probably uh, a couple of key things built on the strengths and capabilities within Indigenous Australia. I'm really value and strengthen the partnerships with uh, Indigenous communities and with uh, Indigenous uh, bodies and to really uh, keep a focus on the longer-term agenda. This is a multi-generational uh, agenda, and we've got to we've got to recognise where we're where we're winning and where we're getting gains. But we're also got to keep an eye to the longer uh, longer agenda. Thank you so much, um, Professor Ian Anderson, for making yourself available to Dr. Three C R. Okay, a pleasure. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. This in this interview this interview there's something fundamentally wrong with the technical thing here. It keeps going around in circular fashion. Uh, and apologies for that, listeners. Let's hear some station IDs and then we'll move on to Kevin Hill in a couple of minutes. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Dum, da, 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 dum. We go on to Kevin Heaney, the week that was... A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when someone, and no-one's got any idea, leaked national security information we have no right to know.
Our role is restricted to providing the billions handed to the merchants of death to ensure we're as nationally secure as we don't know. And just because former Big Supremo Tiny, a bit more for the boss's very, very, very close friend, Greg Sheridum, happened to receive the leak, and just because former Big Supremo Tiny, a bit more for the boss's very, very, very close friend, Greg Sheridum, quoted his very, very, very close friend, Tiny extensively in the story, attacking Tiny's backstabber, current big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, has some people suggesting just maybe Tiny was the leaker, but Tiny has denied it was him and Tiny is an honourable man. He would never, like his hero Cardinal George Appalling, aka Pell Pot, not tell the truth. And anyway, he's a politician, so it should be case closed. And for goodness sake, how can they leap to such a conclusion on such flimsy evidence? This great economic guru advisor, piss on the socialist shrapnel, fired both the liquid and the shrapnel over the socialist negative gearing policy, although they were unable to inform us just who commissioned the report, paid them for it, but it would have been some long-haired commie lot who are envious of the filthy rich and think negative gearing uh, militates against the impoverished. Well, being objective, piss on the socialist shrapnel, pissed on the socialists, and big economic guru scuttled them more less sun leapt on it. The report disproved forever the socialist argument that negative gearing favoured the rich, and in fact, the socialist policy would reduce the poverty-stricken to poverty, put the government's dead hand directly into the pockets of mum and dad investors, and scuttle them sensibly, didn't consider the fact that other wise established Establishment economic gurus like the Lowy the Low Foundation and Saul Es like Profits declared the report utter crap. But only because it was utter crap. Get between him and sticking it up the evil socialists. Or as one scuttled them supporter pointed out, I find negative gearing very positive. Very positive. And we're very positive about something else. Last week we reported top top tough cop on the beat, Nigel Hodge kissed the bosses, had laid charges against numerous construction workers and evil union officials for heinous crimes like swearing and calling scabs scabs. And we can rest assured a refined man in a suit like Nigel would never allow an expletive to pass from his sophisticated pallid lips. He knows it's a crime. As a righteous believer in fair go, we can assume Nigel will be laying charges, murder, manslaughter, any day now against that caring employer on the site where yet another evil building worker was killed two weeks ago. Surprisingly, he did charge one caring employer two weeks ago for the serious crime of giving preference to union members. Gotta stamp that out. We also mentioned how real wages had decreased in real and record terms. The answer to unemployment, the experts tell us, and then wages down, unemployment up. We couldn't work it out. Well, the insurance industry came out and bemoaned the shrinking real wage. It makes it more difficult to sell insurance to lower socio-democratic customers when they have even less money for us to get our hands on and they become not good risks. Truncated, but they really said that.
Uh, Mr. Bloated, why don't you start the ball rolling? Set the example by giving your staff a huge wage rise. Mr. Bloated. Mr. Bloated. Oh dear, he's had a turn of some sort. Over in Roma, our old mate, the aforementioned George Appalling, a.k.a. Pell Pot, was bravely fighting through his unfortunate, timely health condition to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. Uh, Cardinal, could you, could you just tell the Commission your name? Uh, Cardinal. Uh, no, your first and second names. I've no idea. No one told me. I don't remember. I know nothing. Uh, you must know your name. What, what do people call you? Your Eminence. I love it. Don't you just love it? And they kiss my ring. I love that too. And with that, the old George put the blame fairly and squarely on a dying ex-bishop who will be long gone to the great pedophile Eden in the sky when the Royal Commission announces any findings. Uh, but Cardinal, your eminence, whatever your name is, uh, you were on the committee moving pedophiles around as if the diocese was a chessboard. You, you went to court with them. So are you saying you had no idea what you were doing? No idea. I had no idea. No one told me anything. That ex-bishop was clearly keeping from me while I was moving them around. To be honest, his eminence droned, redundant of course, because he had sworn to tell nothing but, and a representative of the dear baby Jesus would never, never be dishonest. To be honest, his eminence droned, I wasn't interested in the pedophiles. Uh, uh, why not? It was so passé, normal. Why should I be interested? I was interested in those who weren't pedophiles, in both of them. So you did know? No idea. No one told me anything. That dying ex-bishop I worked with told me nothing. The archbishop who's dead told me nothing. My cousin, the priest who knew, and more importantly, who's dead, told me nothing. Uh, so all those responsible are dead or about to be. Sadly, that seems to be the truth. Very unfortunate. George did say that one pedophile was one of the most unpleasant priests I have met. And that from George leaves the mind boggling at what the other bloke must have been like. More unpleasant than you. Yes, yes, more unpleasant than me. Speaking of such people, over in the US of the UN of the US of the world, as the gripping endless election farce rolls on, Donald Trample them said he just loves the poorly educated, which is understandable, because they're his big hope. His big danger is poorly educated doesn't necessarily mean stupid. It can and often does just mean lack of opportunity. But those stupid enough to vote for him will ensure all who do lack opportunity will continue with Donald as big world supremo to lack opportunity. Although in fairness to Donald, no matter who gets elected, they'll still lack opportunity. So lucky, lucky Donald will, as the dear baby Jesus said, the poor shall be always with you, will always have the poorly educated to love, to make America great again. Perhaps he means keep the USR great still for those for whom it is already great. Well, not perhaps. That's what he does mean. In a surprise move, Donald did announce he supports current big Supremo Barack for change, change, changes move to close Guantanamo Bay. 
these filthy commie Cubans have no respect for human rights. I back our big world supremos move to close this concentration camp where the Cubans torture innocents without charge and without trial. It's a blight and insult on our great respect for human rights to have these abuses occurring on our doorstep by this filthy commie scum. When it was pointed out to Donald that it wasn't actually the Cubans torturing innocents, being filthy capitalist scum, he immediately attacked Barack for, for going soft on terrorism. It is not an abuse of human rights to abuse the rights of those who have no right to be human. I can believe anyone, I can't believe anyone would want to close a facility that protects the USR people from terror, that protects liberty, freedom and democracy from my people, the poorly educated. A facility that I would use to lock up every single Cuban, every filthy, commie, scum Cuban who hates this great country because we are so great. Torture and summary execution is too good for people who hate liberty, freedom and democracy. On the other hand, another possible big supremo, Hillary Glinting, promised to close Guantanamo Bay as a matter of urgency within eight years of winning office. Donald's constrained language and consistent logic well, on one level, I suppose we could argue his logic is consistent. Anyway, it would lead him to support the true, the, uh, true blue Aussie, dear baby Jesus lobby's call for anti-hate speech laws to be suspended during a possible plebiscite on same-sex marriage. We can't conduct a proper debate if our hands are tied behind our backs, nailed to a cross, if hate Hate, hate, can't be spat at pufters and butch-sheelers who should be maintaining a Christian home for their God-fearing husbands and raising dear little children born in the image of the dear baby Jesus. If we cannot inform good true Blewazis how these evil sinners threaten the very fabric of society, of civilization as we know it, uh, where does the dear baby Jesus bit about love thy neighbour, love thy enemy come in? We do love these people we hate. We must preach hate in order to observe the dear baby Jesus' message of love. It's a freedom of speech issue. We must be free to hate. Finally, perhaps the problem could be overcome if Parliament just did what people think it's there for and voted to legalise same-sex marriage. Oh, but of course, impossible. That, that would require Malcolm to make a decision. Good morning. Thank you, Kevin Healy. That, that was a bit radical. That was fun. Uh, a quick Station 90 before we move on. A new illustrated book by Elena and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Power in our union, the lessons of the past. 
Okay, um, we have another interview that I did with um, a professor, uh, Dr. Davlina Ghosh from the university in Sydney. It's about the protests among university students all over India, which is uh, having a great impact on uh, politics in India. So here we go. We'll be talking to Devlina Ghosh, who is the director of the Indian Ocean and South Asia Research at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also the regional director of the South, West and Central Asia Asian Studies Review. She's an associate professor of Social Inquiry Programme. Her research interests lie in the fields of colonial, post-colonial, environmental and global studies, specifically in the Indian Ocean region. Her projects include culture and commerce in the Indian Ocean region, intercolonial network in the Indian Ocean, gender and citizenship among, among Muslim women in Sydney. Thank you for agreeing to talk to 3 3 Devlina. It's great to have you online. Um, now, there has been a lot of unrest in the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India. I'm just wondering if you could give us a bit of background about this um, unrest there at the moment. Okay. So, uh, the, there's been a lot of student unrest in India generally over the last year. And one of the uh, major uh, events was the suicide of uh, Dalit student at the University of Hyderabad called Rohit Vemula. That's right. And mm-hmm. since his suicide, there have been a number of um, demonstrations number of meetings and uh, commemorations um, discussing the issues raised by his suicide. In the case of JNU in particular, um, though I think the Rohit Vemula incident uh, was also involved, but the particular case was a meeting which was a commemoration of the hanging of Afsal Guru, uh, one of the masterminds uh, behind the attack on the Indian parliament. Now, the Afsal Guru uh, conviction has been seen by many people to be unsafe for a variety of reasons. And a number of questions have been raised about um, his uh, trial and then his execution. At this meeting, um, supposedly uh, anti-India slogans were raised, including uh, we want India to, to sort of like disintegrate and, you know, pro-Pakistan slogans were raised. And the consequence of which was that with the Vice-Chancellor of JNU's uh, support, or at least agreement, um, the police entered campus and arrested uh, the the head of the student union, Kanhaya Kumar, and, uh, and a number of other students went underground. So that was the, the basic incident um, that started the whole trouble at JNU. There has been a a bit of um, um, uprise, if you like, of the, um, you know, general uh, Hindutva sentiment and uh, the Dalits perhaps have been feeling a little bit threatened by the the Brahmin domination of politics, politics, perhaps. What do you think? Well, it is a very complicated issue because um, uh, for the BJP, the Hindutva sentiment um, is uh, um, is both both complicit with and contradictory with uh, the ideology in the sense that uh, they are very much um, uh, very 
keen and enthusiastic that Dalits should remain in the Hindu fold, which means that they would then have to um, have to uh, acknowledge the incredible oppressions that Dalits live under and do something to address them. Otherwise, there's absolutely no reason for Dalits to remain as Hindus. So there is a contradiction, um, you know, there. Um, uh, but in this case, I think also there is there is a, a, a there has been a, a, a level of of um, uh, there has been a, a, a tendency on the part of a certain of the government and, and certainly the BJP to uh, to often brand any form of opposition to a large number of their policies or their sentiments as anti-national. This seems to certainly have been the case in JNU, which, as I said before, was not actually about Rohit Bemila's suicide, though that was part of the whole environment and atmosphere in which uh, this incident at JNU happened. Mm. There there are two sentiments that um, I have observed that goes across uh, the last 50 years, for example, this this nationalistic um, sentiment that, that we all Indians in words, but never actually translates into the way they treat the minorities within India. The other one is using any protest or negative comments made by the uh, uh, made against the government as a terrorist activity. So these two sentiments seem to dem- dominate. Do you think this is because um, they want to control the uh, Indian population? Or is it is it because they want to maintain the divisions? What do you think? Well, I think there's definitely been an impact on free speech in India over the past sort of you know year and a half. Uh, the attitude of uh, certainly Hindutva supporters towards free speech has been has had a very chilling effect uh, on um, discussion and dissent. Uh, these have included, for example, um, you know attacks on um, uh, skeptics and free thinkers, um, attacks on authors who have written not necessarily anti-BJP, but uh, but perhaps more um, uh, openly sort of sexual things about Indian society. Uh, it's included um, attacks on a variety of minority figures, including film stars, and it it and and also on uh, academics of various. Um, you know, political and religious persuasion. So, so there has been a kind of of, of chilling effect. But in particular, so in this incident, uh, what has been really a bit worrying is that um, the the supposedly anti-national slogans raised at the JNU meeting um, were um, filmed by um, Z. TV, Z uh, News, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and after listening to the video, it was said that they heard the slogans, you know, Pakistan's in the bad or you know, disintegration of India or whatever. But a ZTV news producer has actually resigned in the last week, uh, saying that in fact that it um, uh, that they did had not in fact been able to hear any such slogans. Uh, a Twitter account which was supposed to have supported, uh, which was supposed to uh, be from a, a kind of terrorist figure in Pakistan supporting uh, the slogans at the meeting was found to have been faked. Uh, a video was supposed to have been, it was used by Arnav Goswami in a very, very popular uh, television show, was found to have been doctored. So, and the police chief of Delhi has been on record as to say that the students now have to prove their innocence. 
Well, we're actually using sedition laws from the time of the British to arrest people. And according to old British law, um, uh, according to British law, people are innocent and, and the state has to prove them guilty, not the other way around. That's right. So mm-hmm. it's actually a, a really uh, a bit worrying what's going on there. India generally has had a, a fairly open political debate in the, in the public forum, more so than Australia, in fact. But I find that since the BJP was elected, there has been a closing down of such dem- dem- uh, democratic discussions and, and political dissent. Now, the, the BJP is very popular in the north. It's not as popular in the south. The support that BJP has is generally from Hindus who are fairly fervent in their commitment to that religion, so to speak. And I know that in um, the, the anti-Muslim sentiments that they, they, they claim that, was, that were, um, you know, shouted out in this thing, plus the attack on um, free speech, is telling me that the BJP, despite its strength across Australia, has something to fear. I don't understand that fear. They're politically very strong. Uh, Modi came up, Narendra Modi came up very quickly and very strongly um, just before the elections and a majority of people actually voted for him. So what do you suspect the the source of this fear for the BJP is? I mean, the BJP is uh, unusual in that it now has a a majority in parliament, which uh, no ruling court... No party has had for a while. There have been coalitions, as you probably know, for the last you know number mm. of years. Yes. Uh, however, it only won thirty-one percent of the vote. Uh, we have a first-past-the-vote uh, post-voting system with voluntary voting, so you know thirty-one percent of the vote is 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 sufficient. Secondly, it has had some um, you know uh, it has had some hindrances or or, or some uh, uh, obstacles at state election level. So Delhi was the first place where it only won three seats. Um, and Ahmad me won, you know, the rest of the seats yes. in the Delhi elections. Yes. And also in Bihar, where it has also uh, suffered a, a, a really quite substantial loss in a situation where Prime Minister Modi was uh, up front at the, in the campaign and was, was attending most rallies and was very, very visible as, as the most popular leader in the BJP. And that did not help them to, to you know, win. Um there are some indications, certainly at state levels at various places, that the BJP may not be as strong as uh, it has been assumed. So it's possible that that might be the reason why they are feeling less secure than they were before. Hmm. So the, the students um, who were protesting, you know, India's universities historically have been very strong uh, politically, uh, and they have, you know, been very strong activists that have actually come from that arena. They've gone quiet over the last. You know, 20-odd years, there hasn't been a lot of protests. And even the JNU, I believe, was, um, you know, had turned towards a conservative-type uh, stance in their politics. So how do you see this provocation or what is seen as a provocation um, in influencing and politicizing the young people of today who are in universities across across India? Well, um, JNU might have been quiet, but I don't know if it moved to a conservative, um, you know, Stance. I mean, I, I think maybe that that uh, perhaps that has entered uh, the news because uh, for the first time somebody from the Akhil Bharati Vidyarthi Parishad, which is the student wing of the BJP, was elected at the last JNU election. So, but you know, but that and that has never happened before. Uh, but what? But the but uh, what has basically happened in in this case was 
a meeting which was held to express a particular view on the conviction of um, one of the accused in the the attack on the Indian parliament has now suddenly become something which is about whether it's possible to express, to, to, to have a speech crime, that is to say something, not do something, to say something and be arrested for something that you've said, and which is not even a threat necessarily against um, either the nation or any particular person, but just uh, uh, but an expression of dissent. And if we have got to the situation where we have to prove our innocence for having voiced dissenting opinions, then which of us will really be uh, safe from mm. being arrested? Yes. Yes, a lot of people from India have very progressive and, um, you know, um, dissenting voices have been heard from India for a long time, including people like Arunadhi Roy and so on. So how do you see that this, this protest will proceed? Because they were ex- arrested Kumar, who is the, um, pre- uh, the, union, the student union president. Um, they have... He hasn't been released. He has been put into remand. So, how do you have you heard any more from? from Well, I know that the other there's two other people who have surrendered. That's Umar Khalidi and I think Anirban Bhattacharya, who were also um, I think two out of the five students the police were looking for. Um, There has been a number. um, For example, there was a a protest in in Jadapur University in Calcutta against the JNU um, events. And the police uh, went to uh, campus, uh, but the vice chancellor of Jadapur refused to allow them to enter. And the teachers formed a human chain to stop the police from entering and arresting anybody. Um, So things could go one of two ways. Uh, Either there will be even more student dissent and more dissent in general about these kinds of of you know speech uh, of, of these kinds of attacks on free speech, uh, including I'm, I might point out the number of uh, you know organisations who've had their foreign funding curtailed or cut completely because they are seen as anti-national if they are often if they're just pro-environment um, and so on. Greenpeace is a is a good example and it's been in the public uh, uh, you know sort of space, so I can mention it. Um, so, so either there will be more dissent, more crackdowns, and eventually, you know, some form of of um, of of, um, uh, of of consensus. Because after all, this government has another three and a half years left to run. I mean, you know, this it's it's got lots of time to either consolidate its position or make it worse, or there will be an increasing sort of crackdown um, on all forms of dissent. And I'm not sure what kind of of uh, what 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 kind of appearance that dissent will take, or how that dissent will be, how that uh, crackdown will be manifested? Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, these these sorts of um, uh, demonstrations or dissent or resistance are now happening in a number of places all over the country. So, the government has the has uh, the option either of cracking down really hard and arresting everybody and throwing them in prison, or they have the option of of coming to some kind of consensus around dissent and speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not really sure which way they're going to go. Okay, I just want to go back on one point, Rohit. Um, one of Dalit's students. There was, I don't think people in, India actually, in, in Australia actually know very much about that particular incident. He's, um, his suicide has always been a question. I just wonder if you could explain to listeners about what is this thing about Rohit's suicide? How did it, ha- how did it happen and what, what are the issues around it? So Rohit Vemula was in the University of Hyderabad and he had uh, some conflict with uh, some of the 
AVBP, which I've mentioned as the student wing of the BJP. And uh, because of this conflict, uh, there appears to have been pressure put from the state government level for the vice chancellor to exclude him from um, uh, the university. Uh, And he was excluded. He was still protesting outside the university. uh, But through a combination of factors, he obviously felt that his situation was um, you know, irretrievable. He left a very eloquent and poignant suicide note, um, talking about his situation, and um, and and he. I mean, it appears definitely that he committed suicide. I don't think there's any indication there was anybody else involved. But his suicide note was a very sort of um, powerful denunciation of uh, the impact of the caste system on Dalits. And this has, I mean, raised a number of questions as to who was involved in the exclusion, in the expulsion of Rohit from the University of Hyderabad. And certainly also at another university where the prime minister went to speak, some students sort of raised some slogans supporting Rohit Bemila, and they were also expelled from the hostel. That was um, Professor W. Nagosh from the University of Technology of Sydney talking about the situation in India. And for those who have uh, been following this issue, you'll know that um, the arrested students were released last night. And we are waiting to see what will proceed from there because that, that release came only after uh, many uh, university students across India uh, started to take action on this particular issue because, in general, the tradition has been that police do not enter the universities in India. So it's a matter of wait and see as to what's going to happen. Okay, a few more announcements before we um, close this um, program or and, and let um, Asia-Pacific Currents come on. Uh, we have a couple more. One is the uh, Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees that's coming up on the 20th of March at 2 p.m. at the State Library in Swanson Street. It's organized by Refugee Advocacy Network. And there's a How to Stop Violence Against Women, False Solutions and Real Alternatives a forum on the 22nd of March. Um, it's It says it in our supposedly advanced society, there is an epidemic of violence against women, and we know in Australia it's um, two out of three. Our leaders wear white ribbons but are incapable of tackling the problem at its root. Speakers include Bree Carlton, Monash University researcher into women in prison, Karen Fletcher, who's a feminist and a member of the Socialist Alliance, and this will be held in the Resistance Centre, Level 5407 Swanson Street. For those who are interested, there's also a meal at 6 p.m. Now, there is um, a conference that's happening on the 20 on the um, 13th of May through to 15th of May. It's a three-day conference, Socialism for the 21st Century. And speakers include Marta Hanaka, who's a Marxist writer, lecturer and activist of Chilean origin, and she's one of the foremost international exponents of revolutionary processes in Latin America today. She has been a director of the Centro Internacional Miranda in Caracas, Venezuela, since 2002. 
Now, the speaker is uh, Michael Lebowitz, a leading Marxist scholar who has tackled the problems and possibilities of building a socialist alternative. Uh, Michael Lebowitz has worked in Venezuela at the Centro International Miranda again. He is currently Professor Emeritus of, of Economics at Simon Fraser University in Canada. And the other person who is um, a well-known environmental activist, Ian Angus, a professor from a veteran and a socialist and environmental movement um, in uh, activist in Canada, and internationally and a founding member of the Eco-Socialist International Network. Ian Angus is editor of the climateandcapitalism.com on, online journal focusing on capitalism, climate change, and eco-socialist alternatives. Now, this conference also has speakers from Pakistan, India, Malaysia, and several other um, Asian countries. It is being held in Sydney. Uh, for those who are interested, you can look it up. It's under Socialism, Socialism 21st Century. Um, socialism for the 21st Century, one word, dot org, on your, with, of course, followed by all the W's. This is uh, sponsored by Green Left Socialist Alliance Resistance Latin American F Social Forum in Sydney. Links, which is the International Journal of Socialist Renewal, uh, Resistance Books, and it's provided by the University of um, Sydney Union. So there are the announcements. Just a reminder of the um, other uh, announcement that I made before is um, March 7th, protests against... Um, War criminal Benny Gantz, who was um, is, is seen as um, a military <clears throat> person who led offenses offensives against the Palestinian people, and that will be held at six thirty uh, at the Grand Hyatt Hotel, one hundred twenty three Collins Street in the city, and rally and march International Women's Day, of course, eighth of March. 5.30, State Library, uh, and there's a public meeting following that, which is uh, held at the Victoria University Footscray Park, room D531, Those for those who are interested. There's a public meeting to save Pentridge Heritage, um, no high-rise towers for Pentridge, local residents organizing a meeting to protect the heritage values within the Pentridge um, area in Coburg. Speakers include Michael Buxton, RMIT Professor of Planning, Michael Hamilgreen, Emeritus Professor, Calvin Thompson, Federal Member for Wills, Felicity Watson from the National Trust, Chris Turner, Pentris Precinct Resident, facilitated by Sue Bolton, a Moulin Councillor. This will be held uh, at the Uniting Church Hall, 21st Victoria Street, Coburg opposite the Coburg Library. So for those who are interested, you can look it up on Facebook. It says Safe Coburg. And uh, if you're interested in calling someone, it's, you can contact Sue, 0413-377-978. So that brings us to the end of the program. Thank you to Dick Nichols from Spain, who made the time to talk to 3CI and told out your breakfast. And of course, Professor Anderson, who discussed the um, Close the Gap report. 
And W. Nagosh, who is a professor from the University of Technology in Sydney, who discusses the student situation in India. And last but not least, Uncle Kevin Haley. So till another fortnight, this is goodbye from Lalita Chalaya. And Asia Pacific Currents will be following very soon. So let's put on some music while they prepare to come on. Mm-hmm. 